All right. Uh, are you ready to pod, Molly? I'm ready to pod. We're a little further away than usual. Is that going to change the uh, feng shui? <laughs> Everything's going to be different now. <laughs> Everything is different. Everything's different. But you know what they say. Every, Every new beginning. beginning comes from some other beginning's end. Uh, so he's on the closing time. Yep. All right. Ready to get into it? Yeah. Hell yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> Welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. And I'm Molly O'Brien. And introducing, behind every popular song for the last 30 years, it's The Song Machine. Yes, today we're going to be doing a deep dive into how exactly a group of like two dozen Scandinavians changed American pop music since the 1990s through John Seabrook's 2015 book, The Song Machine, Inside the Hit Factory. The hit machine inside the song factory. The song hit inside the machine factory. <laughs> Yo, machine. So, there's got to be a factory for machines. Uh, I, they're made somewhere. They're, I mean, everywhere. Probably in China. We got machines making machines. <laughs> Hi, Molly. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. It's been approximately a month since we've recorded one of these. Oh, my God. And in that month, we have moved into the third studio that and introducing has been recorded inside. Wow. Wow. The third studio apartment that but is. I was going to say the like our, our live work studio, cool studio with studio. like a futon in the back. This, you know, this is the most like cool industrial like could maybe be a recording live in recording studio. It looks like a studio. Folks, we got pipes coming out of the walls now. We got pipes. We got radiators. Want a radiator? We, we got, got three. At least. <laughs> And boy, oh boy, these are going to be singing like like a, like a they're going to be whistling. whistling like the Ying Yang Twins when winter comes. <laughs> Wait till you see that radiator, uh, Molly. Are you? Uh, are you? <laughs> I guess I should say I am ready to get Swede pilled. Oh my! Oh my goodness! Um, I have been. I I don't like to spoil you on subject matter when I'm researching it, but. Through the reading of this book, I've definitely been like, hey, did you know that blah, like throughout the whole thing? Because there's just, I don't know, it's it's truly the the curtain has been pulled back behind the the makings of, of modern pop song craft. Yes. So if my introduction was not clear enough, today we are talking about a book that chronicles the uh, rise of the Swedish style of pop music throughout the 90s and its influence and how it has inflected the other creation of pop music. Because today... Uh, it's like a joke that all American pop music is written by like three Swedish people. Right. Uh, but it was not always the case. Yes. And this is that story of how that thing that is now a joke came to become both true and then cliche. Just just facts. Because now it's just factual. Yeah. Uh, th- this guy who wrote this book, I, this the book increasingly... As I went through it, I like it, I realized that I had already actually read some of it um, because he had published a bunch of New Yorker articles uh, about like disparate songwriters and stuff. Dispatches from the Scandinavian overground. Yeah, um, but uh, yes, it's that that's that's what it is, and it is it's crazy. It's nuts. I was thinking about this because we were recording uh, just a few days after uh, the 4th of July and uh, always around the 4th of July, there's a a little bit of discourse about how the American national anthem sucks, which is true. It's an impossible to sing English drinking song commemorating a battle no one remembers in a war we lost. 
Yeah. It's uh, also like too a little too long, I would long, say as well. Long, slow. It's a ba- is it a ballad? I mean, it's 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 kind of a It's sort of mid-tempo. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm hearing like in my hem like is it like 80 beats per minute? Yeah, <laughs> IDK. Uh, it it feels like running up and down hills. Uh, yeah. Uh, trash throw it out. So I always think of what should be the actual American anthem, and I think that like spiritually it should obviously be something as big and brash and gaudy mm-hmm. and stupid as this country is. Uh, and my mind always goes to jock jams. Yes. Uh, but the thing about jock jams is that almost all of them, the techno ones, uh, are like, are you ready to rumble and all that, all that stuff are written by Swedes and Dutch people. Yes. And I do think that, uh, the national anthem should be written by Americans. So looking again at things that are actually on the first disc of jock jams that I think would be a good national anthem. D- disc one of Jock Jams, the the golden the golden album, the, the golden disc of yeah, Jock Jams. Yeah, I uh, came to this year the 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 realization that my actual pitch for something that feels spiritually aligned for what should be the national anthem is tag teams. Whoop! There it is. Party people. Yeah. Uh, written by Americans, black uh, artists, which seems uh, like. It should be the, the, the writers of the national anthem, like so Absolutely. much more popular music. Uh, big and dumb. And most importantly, I think the the overall sentiment of the song of whoop, there it is. That just feels like America's presence in the world. Yeah. Like just all oh, of a sudden. Oh, you got natural resources. Whoop, there, there we, we are. are. Exactly. 200 years ago, you got oh, a- you've got this ancien regime, old world European order that's been dominating the Western world for uh, for centuries. Uh, bitch America. Whoop, there it is. Whoop, there it is. Oh, you you already you already lived here. Whoop, yeah. there it is. Yes, now you don't. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're an already living indigenous America. Uh, guess what? Uh, coloni- colonizing uh, Brit- Brits. Yeah. Whoop, there we are. You have another kind of uh, government that isn't a democracy. A capitalist democracy. Uh, whoop, whoop, there, there it, it is. is. That's a uh, Wilson Wilsonian yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, democracy was very much like whoop, whoop there, there it is. is. Uh, you've got a bustling industrial city in the su- in the south of Japan in 1945. Boy, howdy. Boy, oh boy. Whoop. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so that's my... Uh, it's a little bit of a tangent right at the top here, but just while I was talking about things written by Swedes and Dutch. Also, this is a one-hit wonder. Tag Team never had another hit, and one-hit wonders are extremely American yeah. to me. Yes, exactly. Uh, so anyway, that's my pitch. Uh, tag Team's Whoop, There It Is. Uh, new American Anthem. But we're not ta- here to talk about tag team, <laughs> though they are tangentially related by association to uh, uh, to Scandinavian produced uh, jams. Sure. Uh, you you want to get crack it open and get right into it? Yeah, let's get right into it. I feel like the you know modern pop songwriting is broad enough that we don't need to be like. So how do you feel about it? Yeah. How do you feel about pop music over the last thirty years? I don't like, know. Hits and misses. Hits and mi- hits and misses. There's there's some good stuff and and there's some bad stuff. You got to take the good with the bad. Yeah. Um. And that's that's just life. But yeah. No. Let's let's get in. Let's get right into it. This is also I should warn. Everyone listening, this is absolutely going to be a two-parter. 
throwing it back to the old times when old we didn't school, yeah. know when I say we I'm including you as if it's your fault when I didn't know how long uh, of notes I should write for an episode and we ended up with several two-part episodes uh, which rambled rambled and dambled and uh, hey we were we were new we were learning we were fresh now we're, we're not so fresh we're getting we're getting a little, little less fresh but we've been high we've been hitting a lot of tight 90s recently which I yeah. think is about the right length for one of these but let's let's go long yeah you know what what else what else have we got to do <laughs> we got a lot of ground to cover okay so first of all shout out to john seabrook the writer of this book uh who wrote it in chronological order i just love thank you there's no there's no opening and it's like it's like the year it's it's december 2019 it oh did be- it did it. it did start in media res i will say that there's a little you, you can't not start a book about music in media res you got to be right in there yeah when the tune hits that made the idea yeah. you know go go whoop uh, there, it, there it was. So he, this is a, a writer who was inspired to basically investigate pop songcraft when he had a child, a, a little boy who he calls the boy. The boy. Uh, and he would drive him to school and they would listen to pop radio. I assume like Z100 because I think he's a New Yorker. And the kid would listen Shout to stuff Z100. like Z100 is, is crazily influential. And that's actually learned about in this book a little bit. Anyway, uh, it's like 2000. This would be like 2008, 2009. And the you you remember the type of pop music from 2008 2009 yes. it's fucking crazy like so he was talking about like right round by flow rider oh, and listening listening to that song and mm-hmm. how much his son liked it and this guy of course he's a stodgy white like he's like a a classic rock kind of mm-hmm. guy which i guess you used to just call rock yes um but he so he's kind of marveling at this insanely uh produced slick uh sexual but like sort of neutered music and yeah. he's saying uh the music reminded me a little of the bubblegum pop of my preteen years but it was vodka flavored and laced with mdma <laughs> True. And, and so he's basically i think he was just inspired to be like where did this shit how, how did we get here how is music formed how was music formed how was music's baby formed so he so he does a lot of investigating of like the songwriting from about 1992 to the present day of his day, which would have been like 2014 when the book was sent to press. So that's the time period that we're looking at. Um, okay. So he, he's, he's, here's the like framework to that. He is looking at pop music, which is both from like a creative standpoint and from a business standpoint, which the two of which are inexorably intertwined as, and, as with all like mass media, creative mass media in this country. Yes. So he's saying songwriting is, is in and of itself. It's a business, right? Because a song is the publishing rights, which is the copy, the copyright of the composition. And then the master recording, which is the sound recording copyright. And so a song is a product as soon as the product exists. Right. And which is, has been the same way, basically the entire history of professional music yes, or recorded music going back to the original hit factory, the Brill building, which yes. turned music rec- like written music into product in a time when written music was first becoming recordable, yeah. which is then a separate product. Yeah. And so basically from that time until the turn of the millennium, a hit song, a hit pop song was a product that drove album sales. Right. You had a popular song. It became popular because, you know, the payola on yeah. the radio. So, some uh, uh, incredible alchemy of luck and 
in- industrial plugging over the many spheres of influence that are mutually reflecting a, each other. A Johnny like, Carson yeah. appearance yes. gone gone right. Yes, a crucial write up in a in new musical express. That's what that's what enemy stands for, right? Yes, uh, sure, sure. Um, that that was the pro that was the way the product was delivered. Uh, you liked a hit song, you purchased the album <laughs> that it came on, yes. right? Uh, and now we are living at a time where music consumption is frictionless right which is basically the belief that you can have as many songs any kind of song you want at any time anywhere and people basically believe that it should not cost any money to get those <laughs> which is uh an insane thing that we've all come to believe all at once and uh even myself because it's so easy what are you gonna do spotify exists and you can hear anything anyway like we it's, can't it's, go back we can't go back and it's useless i i don't know it's it, it's it's useless blaming individual consumers for those kind of choices because it is frictionless and water will always fall fluid will always fall to the lowest level down the easiest drain you know yeah um so the the original someone who i'm not going to unfortunately be able to cite by name because i forgot to write it down but their their theory as music became free quote-unquote free is that there would be more micro hits which is to say that in the absence of a, a popular product driving purchases many 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 more people could have more niche hits that is not true hits yes. are still the currency with which ah, the biggest but did they stars predict, but did they predict uh, a tiktok dance craze well i mean that was not covered in this book maybe things are we'll have to get to uh, the song machine too the song tiktok machine years. Two, the, the tiktok tiktok time uh no so the the idea that in the absence of like a overarching like musical culture that there mm-hmm. could be like like niche communities it's like kind of true but like not yeah. really hits are still what work yes um and so this book is basically just like why (laughs) and how and how (laughs) and in order to do that in order to look back uh where the genesis of like current song craft is we have to go to sweden and we have to go to the early 90s and i'm very excited to do this excellent let's travel to sweden in the early 90s where you are either a uh I, i assume like a uh neon reebok ski uh suit wearing guy with uh like wraparound sunglasses mm-hmm. or a uh, like Norwegian death metal uh, uh, so goth uh, you're going to burn down a church guy. If you walk into a church, the church, the church catches on sets, fire. Yes. That's a flame. Yes. The, the two modes of early 90s Scandinavia. <laughs> yeah. So not not only can we pinpoint this to a particular time and a particular city, Stockholm, but it's one. it's basically one guy. There's one guy who's the grandfather, great, great grandfather at this point of modern pop songwriting. And that's a guy whose name is literally pop. Dennis pop. Dennis pop. That's Dennis with a Z. That's not his real name. His, his real name is like Daga or something. <laughs> I don't know. The Dennis with a Z is like very, uh, uh, Eurovision. Yes, totally. Um, and that's, that's his like disco name, uh, which <laughs> is, you know, just great. And also, you know, all yeah, now you, producers all have those yeah. names, which is cool. Is his name not actually Max Martin? His oh shit! His name is it's not Max Martin. His name is Martin White. But he wanted to tell you that it was the maximum amount of Martin you could get. <laughs> and you know the vo- you put the volume on Max to listen to his songs because yeah, they were just all, so good. All his dials goes from zero to Max Martin. <laughs> um, so you got this guy Dennis Pop. He is a DJ. He works at a music company called Sweemix. <laughs> um, you don't when you don't want the remix, you want the Sweemix. That is exactly what it. That's what it is. <laughs> Sweemix is ten Swedish DJs who would 
they worked at a record store. They would spin at clubs in the area and they would, their specific job was to remix US and UK hits for European audiences. Okay. So like they would kind of uh, Eurofy music. They would, you know, basically, and they were working with tape. Like they were literally yeah. cutting up tapes to like extend bridges or like extend breakdowns, like anything that might just be slightly yeah. different with a European audience. That's what, that's uh, what they would do. Add, add more references to uh, candy bars you've never heard of. <laughs> uh, replace descriptions of pants to like much weirder descriptions of those pants. No, we don't have jeans here. We have, uh, we, all, have... we have ultra denim. <laughs> Is the denim with much more strap? We have uber denim. Uber denim. Uh, it goes over. It's actually over. Pa- it goes over, over pants. the pants. So These... what you, the pants you sing about? We don't see those because pants go over. It goes over them. Yes. Yes. Uh. So that that's Dennis Pop's job at the time is being a extremely cool but very specific Swedish DJ who's like working with people at that point like pop in the early 90s pop is not cool. Yes. You know what I mean? It's der- derogatory. Yeah. It, it it I feel like at that time it's more like the sense of if your music does not have a discrete style or like something you're going it's like oh what are you even doing? You're just making pop. Yeah, right. You're just making music that you want people to like. Yeah. We, that's very weird. It appeals to a mass audience. Yucky. Yuck. Get the fuck out of here. Get the fu- <laughs> um, and so the Sweden to explain why, why Sweden, that was why Dennis yeah. pop, why Sweden, they have one of the highest percentages of English speakers of any non English speaking country in the world. Um, Swedish music had gained somewhat of a uh, Swedish acts in particular have mm-hmm. gained somewhat of a foothold specifically. ABBA. ABBA. Uh, do you, I see my like uh, Vermont vibe would be to say ABBA. ABBA. But is it ABBA? ABBA. ABBA. If I'm ABBA. just saying it in the na- in natural tones, I'd say ABBA. ABBA. Whatever. But I'm sure it's ABBA. Um, hey, real quick before we go on, uh, yep. I've got a few mixes on YouTube. Do, Do we you? want to hear what like I've got? So- now, this, I'm just going off what I can see on YouTube. Michael Jackson, Billie Jean mix. Would you I mean, like to play hear that? it? Play it. Let's see what happens. Definitely an extended intro. Okay, let me pull yeah. into the, the middle. Yeah, of hop, hop in the middle. So, hyped up drums, like like increased drum track. Pulled up the string section a little bit. Yeah, like almost. It sounds like they like added strings, which is very like what we will come to know of the style. Yeah, that like synth string thing going in the background. Honestly, from where we're about to get to in the late 90s, I I recognize very, like, at least a few recognizable uh, elements. That synth string section. Anyway. I did, I, that's cool. I didn't even realize that we mixes had uh, made it to the internet. Well, there are a few of these on uh, YouTube that I'll probably go and investigate later, maybe link in, but go check them out for yourself. Uh, some sweet mix p- parodies. Though I always love when somebody posts something on YouTube that's like 
Michael Jackson, Billie Jean Squeemix, best ever mix, V Rare. V I'm like, Rare. Dude, it's on YouTube now. It is no longer, no matter how rare it was, yeah, no made longer it. room. Yeah, rare. I, I didn't find this in a dusty. I found some very bin. rare YouTubes. <laughs> rare, rare YouTubes. That's, I like that concept. Yeah. The indie, the indie YouTubes, low key. Um, so, yeah, that's, anyway, yeah, back, back to Sweden. Um, it's, it's, it's full of English speakers. Some Swedish acts singing in English have, uh, oh yeah, sorry. Uh, can we just zip ABBA? ABBA. ABBA. <laughs> so <laughs> ABBA's thing was they mixed, bas- their songs are basically a mix of like Swedish folk songs, like tr- <laughs> almost like traditional Swedish folk melodies with something called Schlager music. <laughs> are you familiar with this? Uh, I assume it has something to do with uh, drinking. Schla- uh, it's a polka based usually German language genre mm-hmm. uh, that from like the sixties. And so like the mix of those two things brought and with like the more like disco vibes yeah. basically was a hit recipe for uh, uh, ABBA domin. I don't know why I keep saying ABBA ABBA domination. Uh, also their, their whole thing was making happy songs that sounded sad and sad songs, songs that, that sounded, sounded happy. happy. I mean, a, still a killer uh, combination. Uh, I'm going to have to play some Schlager music. Okay. This is Heino Melody Volkslieder, 1972. Let's hear what this sounds like. Jenseits des Tales standen ihre Zelte zum roten How different is this from Fernando? Not really. I do have to tell you that the guy singing this song uh, is your dad. Looks exactly like Andy Warhol playing an acoustic guitar. Are you sure it's not Andy Warhol? I'll, I'll chat this to you. Yeah, this is a, you're right. This is not that far off from Fernando. Will you add a disco beat to this? Just sort of, you know, sing-along quality. All right, that is Heino with Melody Volkslieder, 1972. Thank you. Well, that's Schlager music. So yeah, the that's that's the kind of like transitional like Scandinavian pop heritage went from like literal folk songs to like ABBA mm-hmm. to whatever the next thing was. And what the next thing was is Dennis Pop is saying, I would like to write songs not for Swedish people to sing in English, but for non-Swedish people to sing in English, which was kind of an unheard of English people to sing in English. Yeah. You know, uh, Americans, British people, uh, the, the, basically the idea of a Swedish songwriting company making songs for non-Swedish people was not a thing. Uh, and he wanted to make it a thing. And the way that John Seabrook writes it is he says a nation of songwriters endowed with melodic gifts who were meticulous about craft, but who were reluctant to perform their own songs was a potential gold mine for a nation of wannabe pop stars who don't write their own material, <laughs> AKA America. America. <laughs> um, so De- Dennis was not a musician in the traditional sense. He didn't know how to play any instruments. He was truly a producer, mm-hmm. like cutting up tape, creating sounds with synths, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he was mocked by his fellow Swimix DJs for his pop aspirations. Dennis, you will never write song in America. <laughs> Give up this crazy dream. <laughs> All you do is cut tape. <laughs> and his response to that was, what do you know with your jazz chords? <laughs> is that really? Yeah. 
just your uh, your your minor you're, fifth fifth harmonic. You you pretentious right Swedish songwriters with your jazz chords. I write I write in America. I no pay. jazz chords. <laughs> I don't know what these accents. Are. I don't know what Swedish. Yeah, you write in America. That's more like it. Uh, you got to do Swedish Chef. I write the papsum. All oh, right. Yes, of course. Bork 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 as they say. <laughs> Um, so the first, he started working with, uh, English speaking artists a little bit in the studio. The first, uh, band that he actually worked with that, uh, gave him a foothold in the U S and the UK, gave him genuine hits was Ace of Bass. Yes. So he was Ace of Bass's producer. Uh, the early nineties, uh, best, uh, post disco Nazi band. Yes. Uh, yes, exactly. I, I didn't realize that, uh, there was a, a ex-Nazi in Ace of Base until like last year. Yeah, I think I someone know. on Twitter told me, I was like, oh man. Oh, damn. Oh, darn. Darn. Ah, just when you think you have a good one. Just, I, I forget the timeline with that. Was he a Nazi before he was in? Before he was in Ace of Base. He was did in... Did he give, renounce his Nazi? Yeah, he did. He And he apologized. I mean, like, can't cancel hey, culture? No, guys. Too soon? Uh, he, he saw the sign. It opened his eyes. Yep. He saw the sign. Um, so Ace of Base sent uh, Dan as a demo and the demo was a tape and he listened to the tape and he didn't really like it. But the thing is, he put the tape in his car and he got stuck in his car's tape deck so that it was the only thing he could listen to for weeks. And then finally he listened to it enough that he's like, actually, I kind of fuck with this. I get it. And then called up Ace of Base and was like, let's produce your albums. Uh, well, that'll do it. Just listen to the same song 10,000 times and you're like. Later on in this book, that is basically the form. That is why pop music is popular. It's, uh, I guess you would call that a, a tautology, mm -hmm. is that fam you like familiar music right. because it is familiar. And it is well, designed to be familiar. Yes. It's like those, uh, the taste scientists who develop the perfect crunch. It's the, what your mouth already wants. Yes. It's what your electrolytes, it's what the body needs. It's what your body craves. Well, why does your body crave them? Because they're electrolytes. Because they're electrolytes. And that's it's what, what the, the body, body craves. craves. Uh, John Seabrook, much later in the book, uh, describes he's hanging out in the studio with Max Martin and a uh, disgraced producer who we'll talk to about a bunch, Dr. Luke, and they have played a new Katy Perry song for him that is not yet released. Uh, he's like, in his head, he listens to it and he's like, this sucks. I don't know what to say to these people when they ask me whether I like it because I don't like it. And so he was just kind of like, oh, yeah, it's fine. The song was Roar. Huge um, hit, yeah. massive hit. Ended up Hillary Clinton's campaign song, one of her campaign, one of her songs. campaign songs. Uh, and he basically said that by the time Roar came out, it had already been played so many times on the radio that he realized that he didn't mind it. Mm -hmm. And then he was like, "I truly have been brainwashed because right. I heard it once and I didn't like it." But you can't really hear a song once now. No, that's not the point of pop music. It is part of a seamless commercial background to our music cons consumption that is meant to be heard every moment that you are in a public space. If you are a consumer, yeah. basically you are, living in, living in a society, you're going to hear you are living music. in a, uh, like a bell curve where the middle part of the bell curve is whatever the top 200 songs are right now mm -hmm. that you, and then and realistically the, the top 50 and realistically the, the top, top 20. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the, the fringes are like the classics or like monster hits from the eighties or like journey or whatever, who that comes back on the radio whenever. But like when you're in a C, when you're in a fucking Dwayne Reed, when you're in a gas station, when you're like literally anywhere that music is played, it is meant, it is like des all designed from the top, top down, bottom up as all to be part of one seamless project. The product of continuous play. Yeah. 
So that by a the time a sonic tapestry, by the time you might even question whether you like a song or not, it's too, it's late. too late. You you like it. Yes, but by time you've already, for most people who don't pay super close attention, who aren't like, you know, on the PR emailing list, hearing a song as it comes out, by time you've heard it on the radio, you've actually heard it enough to identify, oh, that song, you've already heard it so much that it doesn't matter. Yeah. You, you already know it and it's yeah. already inside you. Yep. Yeah. Um, just thinking back on my, my life and my history, I'm just remembering the first time I heard Destiny's Child Survivor on the radio and it was the first time and it was the only time and then I didn't hear it for a while and I remember hearing it that time and being like, I don't like this song. I don't know what's going on in this song. It's like super busy and like there's weird drums. It's like a, a guitar track and, it, and a the, Destiny's Child song. Like the call and response is weird uh, and then it wasn't until like months later that I realized as a child, I was like, I did not like this song, but now I do. And it's not because anything changed in me. It's just because of what I've been exposed to, which is the song over and yes. over and over again. Anyway, that's that the, the reason that pop music is basically like that now is be, inadvertently because of Ace of Bass's sure. tape. So uh, Dennis produces uh, some songs for Ace of Bass, including the song I would like to listen to is The Sign. All right, here we go. Ace of Bass. The sign. Do we know what year this is? 95? No, earlier than that. Not till 1993 See, the thing is, is that at, at this point, like I can kind of detect recognizable elements of influence kind of like you know late 80s house music electronic bass lines and even like those housey pianos as it transitions between parts yep uh but it has already mutated so much to just being a precursor of all that late 90s pop music that it's it's hard to think of it as something as a product of sources rather than a source itself yeah yeah The signature thing about the sign that basically made Dennis Pop and, and his eventual uh, like studio of Swedish producer bros is the percussion, mm -hmm. which is like the how do they put it in the book? Uh, it's a kick drum, a hand clap, and a snare that are all set so close together that they're heard as one sound. But it's like then just slightly yeah. different enough to register not as just like exactly one beat. Yeah, and that gets used for the rest of the 90s basically it's enhanced a little bit but that like kind of shimmery yeah so on percussion. the so you can hear it on the off because you hear the kick on the front beat but when all three come in uh, on the second thing it all sounds like one one thing sound. yeah that like super like crunched drum machine sound yeah i also find notable the the syncopated 
bass line that kind mm. of adds as a counterpoint to the the, the vocal mel- mel- melody that seems very familiar to like I don't know like Britney Spears songs. Yeah, like that. yeah. It's also such a good example of Swedish lyric writing, which doesn't make any, if you actually look into it and you pick it apart, you're like, what the fuck are they saying? And we're going to go into to like some deep reads of lyrics later, right? Absolutely. All right, great. Well, we but can do that later. One of the... I mean, this is, the sign is, I think in the, in its way, like one of those like cultural chaos runes, runes that like as soon it was, as it was unleashed into the world, like, you know. Uh, set off a chain reaction uh, that would just like was as inevitable as it was revolutionary, yes. you know? Yeah. The other funny thing about it, that's why I clarified 93 instead of 92 mm-hmm. is that the, na- the, the narrative, a friend of the pod, uh, Matthew Perpetua has said shit like this before. Just like the, the way, the way people misremember things yeah. of you, you misremember the early nineties as darkness, gloom, grunge, like sadness. But there was stuff like that. That was like yeah, huge yeah. hits in, in the U S that's like sunny, kind yeah. of demented, uh, <laughs> <laughs> kind of demented yeah. very demented. Uh, there, there's not quite the, the, yeah. you know, unilateral interpretation yeah. of pop music. Like there's all kinds of weird stuff going around at the edges too. Um, the songwriter, Ulf, <laughs> sorry, I can't, I don't want to be disrespectful to Swedish listeners. Ulf Ekberg said, uh, the reason that, uh, they can find the word that sounds good with the melodies because they are able to treat English very respectless. Yes. I be if you don't if the the language is just another instrument in your toolkit, like why do you care about syntax or meaning or yeah. anything? Yeah. And when music when something is delivered in this like sugar rush of a way, you don't have time or thought. It it like trepains you. It removes the part of your brain that processes lyrical uh, 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 continuity or, or syntax or sense. What is the sign? She saw it and it opened up her eyes. <laughs> right? Like, Do I have to fuck? explain? <laughs> it's, a, it's just so nuts. It's like, yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's the thing she saw that opened she her eyes. She saw it and opened and her eyes. And also by the virtue of these songs making no sense that you can imply a universality onto them. And you can then... Uh, Cut, cut and paste the meaning of your life your specifically life onto it. I mean, that I think is one of the powers of this kind of pop music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm pro ambiguous writing in general because it makes things more universal. Because anybody's experience with whatever sign they can think of, right, of reflects in this song. Right. It's not Bruce Springsteen being like, "I am from New Jersey, <laughs> yeah. and I don't have a yeah. car yet." Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> And now I'm just imagining actual like Swedish storytelling. Like if instead of just these sort of vague platitudes, like Swedish people were actually writing about their lives and how ridiculous it would be for American audiences. I think I've said this earlier. I would say that the other pole of this in contemporary American songwriting is the hip hop rap mode of being hyper specific to the singer. Yeah. Like, like a Lil Wayne song is like a song about specifically Lil Wayne's life. Yes. And the things that he did maybe that exact day. Yes. That go to the entire other direction that mm-hmm. where the joy of the song is fantasizing about being specifically the singer. Yes. Versus something like this, which is where the singer is nobody and thus, you know, can be. Yeah. The singer anyone. doesn't exist. Yeah. It's a, it's a shimmery, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, fun v- void. Yes, exactly. A, a cipher. Yes. 
Um, okay, so Asa Bass gets these absolutely uh, gem like recordings made thanks to the uh, production of Dennis Pop. Dennis Pop. Dennis. Uh, it gets the attention of Clive Davis. Clive Davis flies Asa Bass to New York. Okay. He gets them in a car straight out of the airport and drives them right to his offices in Midtown, <laughs> right off the fucking plane. Yeah, may- maybe I could go change or something. <laughs> Yo, could we get to the hotel and take a he's, shower? He's like 16 hours from Sweden. <laughs> I'm a little hungry. I heard maybe we could get grab the, a hot dog. get to the office. You sign these contracts. You want to you eat? You want food? You want clothing? You sign this contract, Ulf. Uh... <laughs> Not not only did they get uh, swept straight from the airport to Clive Davis's office, before they got to meet with Clive Davis, they had to sit down in a conference room and watch a 40-minute film about <laughs> Clive Davis's career. <laughs> that is some alpha shit. That is some... That's just nutty. Hi, that's nutty with I'm it. I'm Clive Davis. Welcome to Clive Davis, the Clive Davis story by Clive Davis. Aretha Franklin. Heard of her? <laughs> I don't. He Did he discover her? He discovered all the all the best yeah. female song, like divas of our time. Just imagining, like as the the videos closing, the screen pulls away, and he's like pushing open two doors into the conference room, being like, "How did you like the Clive Davis film?" <laughs> and all these these pale Swedish people are just like, "I'm a little hungry still. Do you have any nuts?" <laughs> now, time to talk business with do, me, Clive Davis. <laughs> do you have a bowl of cashews or something? Would be nice. Uh, so. Asa Bass gets signed. They have these hits. The hits, they happen. The hits start coming. The hits are and coming. They and they coming. do stop coming. Okay. Partially because of the revelation that uh, one of the members of Asa Bass was, uh, uh, used to be associated with Nazis, was, mm-hmm. was a former Nazi. And you, could you guess what the, the impulse might be in the future to find people to produce? Maybe instead of, you know, Europeans who are a bit older with a little bit more history, maybe find some fresh-faced teens yes. who don't have any problematic behavior in their past. Who could be uh, a blank slate on which to imprint any kind of uh, uh, marketing gimmick or, or backstory yeah. or style or influence. Who also wouldn't necessarily be as pushy about, you know, production decisions you, or you just want money. To young, dumb, and full of pop hits. Full of music. Yes. <laughs> full, full of melodies. So, uh, Dennis, he quits. And this, I feel like this, that's a, a sort of general statement. I don't think, I'm not attributing um, targeting and uh, exploiting teens specifically to uh, Mr. Dennis Bob. You know, uh, doing a, a perhaps uh, molding them to be better in the future, uh, um, grooming them, perhaps. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Uh, so D- Dennis quits Sweemix. He starts his own uh, studio called Chiron Studios. Chiron Studios is the, like, you know, the origin point for now, basically all Swedish pop songwriting. It's in- the, the Ellis Island for uh, for incoming Swedish influence. Yeah. The, you know, gr- ground zero, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh we just watched the Eurovision um, movie yes. with Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams, and the songwriting in that is done largely by original '90s alums of Chiron Studios, Chiron Studios as well as their disciples. Because once you're a producer, you used to get to mentor other producers, and sure. yada yada. Uh, so that's uh, <laughs> the the other important part of this time zone in like the early mid '90s. 
Chiron also had a record label arm, which was quickly shuttered because as everyone knows, as soon as they start trying to run a record label, it's basically impossible. Yes, because they were like, because the owners of the other three record labels are like, like, my fine record label you got here would be a shame if something was to happen to it. (laughs) A lot of talented producers and artists on your rosters. It'd be uh, horrible if something was ill was to befall them. Um, oh look a contract with Universal Music Group <laughs> with just EMI. fell out of my pocket oh. maybe you'd want to sign that one maybe it's uh, the deal is a little sweetened for you maybe just just maybe uh, so the, yeah that, that label shut down I think almost immediately but one of their first signees was a local Stockholm hard rock band called It's Alive It's Alive uh, one of with the members Brad? of whom is named Martin White who is eventually going to be Max Martin so ah. Max Martin, the one of the most winningest uh, songwriters in pop music history, he has 23 Billboard number ones. The writer of the book, John Seabrook, said that uh, he basically, in in the span of him writing the book, he kept having to change the number of <laughs> because they Billboard just number ones. Because, because for Max Martin, the hits start coming and they don't stop coming. Yes. Do uh, you want to listen to some It's Alive? Oh, fuck yeah. Uh, this is off... <laughs> I did. I I guess this is a maybe an accurate one. This is off 1993's Earthquake Visions. Wonderful. This song is called "Pretend I'm God." <laughs> Earthquake Visions, just very blurry visions because yeah. you're just like being jostled yeah, around. It's like the Mr. Krabs meme. <laughs> Again, this song is called "Pretend I'm God." Fuck yeah. Uh, I would call this nothing to write home about uh, hair metal hangover music. It, it is so funny. It's like, oh yeah, this this was still happening. Yes. You know? I guess speci- specifically in Sweden, they were like, yeah, maybe we can make White Snake 2. White Snake again. Wow, in 1988, It's Alive played as the in-house band at a disco in Cyprus. <laughs> okay. Uh, Where do weird, you find that job listing? Weird vibe in the disco in Cyprus. Uh, do you think that that's where uh, Paul Hollywood was cooking? Right, Paul Hollywood was uh, ch- did some uh, ho- Cyprian stuff for yeah. many years. Ooh, weird crossover. Paul Hollywood and Max, Max Martin, Martin, down on their luck, Paul Hollywood and Max Martin meet on a bar in Cyprus in 1991. Could that's, happen. That's a movie if someone can write it. I don't know if anyone would see it. I would see it. <laughs> the The Adventures of Young Paul Hollywood. It's, I mean, this, it's humble beginnings, but. but can I get the fast forward? Is Max Martin canceled? Nope, he's fine. He's fine. Okay, he's good. Fine. So, so we can we can joke. Good we can about we it. can joke. To to my knowledge, nothing has come out yet. I'm looking at his Wikipedia article. I'm There's looking, no section controversies. I'm looking for the controversy section. I'm seeing nothing. This guy is buttoned up. 
Well, he's all business, no here, leather. Here is the sound of one of the most <laughs> the the young sound of one of the most influential music producers uh, of all time, frankly. Of all time. This song has 13,000 listens on Spotify. <laughs> Talk about rare no, rare tunes. Yeah, this, this is a rare Martin. This this uh, uh, album, uh, Earth, sorry, Earthquake Visions, Visions Earthquake Visions, sold thirty thousand copies, <laughs> which is like selling two copies in in nineteen ninety three. An, an inauspicious beginning. Not not great. Um, so that's that's Chiron. They they've got their initial taste of success with Ace of Base. They've been proven to make hits. People can start hiring them to make good pop music for them. Please do pop good for me. Make uh, do pop. Uh, I wish for the, the pop to be good. May you help? Got a good song, please. Money for money for hits. <laughs> um, we now imagine there's a a 3D imagery of a globe, and the globe zooms out, and yeah. then it turns, and then it zooms back in to Orlando, Florida. <laughs> pew 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 pew. Why are we in Orlando? Uh. No good reason. We're at <laughs> Disney World, I guess. We're visiting the Epcot Center. Uh, I've never been to Epcot. Uh, it's fun. The the cool part of it is that they have these booths in the back that represent something like thirty countries from around the world, and each one has like little attractions that represent the country. But most importantly, representative food and drink. And so you okay. can do like a drink crawl and get like sake in Japan, or uh, you know, a pills up a, 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 a lager in Germany, or um. I guess a proper cuppa in, in, in England. My, my question is, cause you know, like Disney has like Disney freaks, like people who yeah. are like ride or die. Are there then sub freaks that are like Epcot freaks that are like kind Probably. of the, cult, the Dis- cultured Disney fit? Disney like- brings out every kind of psychosis available in people. So I'm sure that there's some hardcore Epcot freaks out there. <laughs> I just imagine like Epcot freaks who are like, I love other countries. I love eating and drinking from them. Do I want to go to them? Absolutely not. I want to go to Orlando. <laughs> We're in, we're in Orlando. Uh, why Orlando? Well, many reasons. One is that Orlando is a, uh, a, a city full of entertainers. Uh, and entertainers specifically, as John Seabrook cites, uh, a, young people whose job is to bring pop culture characters to life. That's a very specific kind of entertainer. It's uh, not just someone who's like, I sing good and dance good. It's someone who is... Cinderella. Uh, they have a name, and they're called Imagineers. <laughs> um, they they have a name. Put some respect on the Imagineers' name. I, Disney is one of those. Ins- I mean, this isn't that revelatory, but Disney is one of those insane places that everyone who works for it is called a cast member. Yes. Yeah. That's um similar to the makeup store Sephora. You're a cast member. I don't know if you're a cast a member. Model? You're not a cast member, but when you are working on the floor, you're on stage. You're on stage. That is what they refer to it when you uh, are on. Fucking insane. <laughs> ca- ca- that should ca- be illegal. Capitalism? Yes. <laughs> yes no, you are an employee. It is all to obfuscate that relationship. You're a family member. Uh, family member is the worst. Is that's probably, you think that's what Olive Garden employees are called? Uh, La Familia. La Familia. La Cosa Nostra. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so yes, Orlando is full of entertainers, full of young entertainers, people who are good at singing, good at dancing, but also good at being a character. Yeah. Perfect minds to mold yes. into uh, pop musicians. It's just like the, all these like cultural chaos elements. Because I'm just imagining 
the presence of Disneyland in a culturally, otherwise culturally uh, uh, void like Orlando. Yes. It's just like a leaking barrel of radioactive material just seeping into the groundwaters and mutating everybody uh, like born or drawn to there. Totally. To be somewhat Disneyfied. Yep. A a Disney mutant. A Disneyfication. A Disneyfied mutant. Yep. Uh, And in this uh, literal... A swamp basically yes. of of uh talent and exploitation we meet lou perlman oh the 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 blimp bastard himself the the blimp the blimp fucker himself uh lou is a he's actually a new yorker he's not a, a florida man but he boy does he embody florida man uh, absolutely all all of his elements together i mean we we already gave away the big one but starting out as a blimp magnet turned boy band producer that is like one hot, like top tier, uh, not just Florida guy, but America guy. Amer- that is America in a nutshell. Yeah. He wrote, so he wrote an autobiography called Bands, Brands, and Billions, which unfortunately, because I do think he is a sex pest, I don't want to give any. I mean, we've we've read books by sex, plenty of sex pests, but like he's a, he's a one. yeah, he's a, a he's also dead, so we can yeah. you know speak as ill. We should pirate his book. As we, yeah, we can pirate his book. Maybe maybe do a, a sub episode. But the Lou Pearlman, uh, he. Yeah, he's a he's a blimp guy. He's obsessed with blimps as a child, and all he wants to do is have a blimp company. How to get the money to start a blimp company? Sell an ad on a blimp that you don't have. That's how he got his first, first blimp, blimp. Is he went to Jordash Jeans, <laughs> which said, I'll, I'll and put- said, "I got a blimp. You want you want a Jordash blimp?" And they were like, "Sure." And he's like, "Great. With that money, I shall buy blimp." Oh my god! Isn't that fucking wild? Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, it doesn't. It's, I guess it's not totally insane, but it's just like the scammiest behavior came from. It's Have you so- ever, fe- fellas? Let me pick, picture this. You look up in the sky, and there, on the side of a beautiful round blimp, the ass of a wonderful pair of Jordash <laughs> denim. <laughs> Have you ever imagined your ass on a blimp? <laughs> but the thing is, wh- women don't want to be. They don't want their asses compared to blimps. They just want to it's see a, paradox. A, a blimp-sized ass, yes, but not a blimp-esque ass. Yes, yeah, it is a it is a paradox. Um, so yeah, he's he. That's how he garners a blimp company is by selling ad space on a on a non-existent blimp in order to buy a blimp. He paints the blimp, the Jordash blimp, gold, uh, <laughs> and he's supposed to fly it from New Jersey to Battery Park City. It crashes after only a hundred feet in the air because the gold paint. Too, too hot, heavy, hot too or heavy, heavy. Uh, and uh, paradoxically, again, this is attention for Jordash because the, the Jordash, Jordash blimp, blimp crashed. crashed. This like, being the sec, probably the second greatest blimp disaster in New Jersey history. <laughs> so, is there a Wikipedia list of notable New Jersey blimp disasters? Well, you know what the notable first the bi- notable the big one, the big yes. the big Yeah, Manchester Township, New Jersey, May 6, 1937, the Hindenburg, the Hindenburg. disaster. Oh. Uh the huge manatee. New <laughs> Newark, where where was he launching it from? Uh I forget. It's 1992, the Jordache Jeans blimp disaster. Yes. All right, so so we've got we've got this failed blimp that yes. still garners uh attention. He sort of turns this bl- <laughs> well i'm like what what is real what is fiction so he then starts he's got a blimp company he's got a private jet company he pretends that he has an entire fleet of private jets he has in fact access to one private jet uh he 
that private jet shuttles around uh, figures such as pop musicians, rock stars. And from this, he gets the idea. He's, he sees how much money pop stars are making sure. and he sees dollar signs. Specifically, uh, the, the example that he's looking at is New Kids on the Block. New Kids on the Block is a, uh, a white boy band that is basically copied. I, I didn't realize this, but it's just a model of the black boy band New Edition. Oh, New Edition. Uh, I, I was going to assume Boys to Men. No, uh, New Edition, which uh, Bobby Brown was the, okay. the the breakout dude from New Edition. So New Kids on the Block was, uh, a, we've got a Wahlberg, we've got a couple of, of Knights, Jordan and Justin. I don't know. New, New Kids on the Block was before my time and yes. after my mom's time. Yes. So it sort of existed in that weird, like late Gen X limbo. Uh, but New Kids on the Block made $800 million in merch sales in 1990. That is wild 800 million dollars and another 200 million in touring that's a one billion dollar industry a billion dollar band uh that is one-fifth donnie Wahlberg. one-fifth donnie Wahlberg. because we talked about this and you were like what is donnie Wahlberg's net worth and we looked it up and i mean i don't don't know how accurate all these celebrity net worth sites are but it was 20 million and you said that man should have at least 200 million dollars yes if you made a if you were one fifth of something that generated one billion dollars, yeah, in 1990, I mean, you know, maybe maybe he's made some bad investments or, or whatever, but you know, he yeah. should have more than that. He should. I mean, he, then he it should be redistributed. Yes, to, you know, but he should. He has earned yeah. at least that much money in his time. Uh, so Lou Pearlman sees the earning potential of boy bands, and he's like. I got to get me one of those. I got to get me a boy band. Specifically, the way uh, he considers boy bands is like they are boy bands are to girls what sports are to boys. Sure. You go to the live events. You purchase merch. Yes. You are a fan. You, you, you clothe know, yourself. You know, you know their stats. You know their stats. <laughs> you have a favorite yes, player. Exactly. And so, and that's not, and you also, you don't, <laughs> you don't earn any money because you are nine years you old. You keep up with their swaps and trades. Yeah. You, you don't earn any money, but boy, oh boy, does your mommy and daddy mm-hmm. earn money and they lend you money uh, at, at 0% interest. So you've got money to burn. You don't have rent to pay. Yes. You can, the money that you have goes straight to yes. Donnie Wahlberg. Well, not straight to teenage girls' allowances is a are a untapped resource, a a powerful resource, and so not untapped, a a very exploitable resource. Yes, exactly. Uh, So he sees this. He's like, "I got to get me a band. Let's let's make me a band." So he he goes to Orlando because that's where the entertainers are. He literally hosts auditions for his boy band Mm -hmm. in his blimp hangar in Kissimmee, Florida. Oh God. Which is not air conditioned, and he thoughtfully turns on the blimps uh, to like re- the blimp rotors. The Which honestly, it sounds like a boy band music video. It does totally. They were always in hangers. Maybe that's the origins of it. Is they had to audition in these weird guys like I would uh, vehicle. What am I thinking of? Like bye bye bye. Yeah, or something where they're dancing in a hangar. Um, Backstreet Boys. No, Backstreet Boys. Which one are the Backstreet Boys dancing in a hangar? As long Backstreet as you love Backs? me, Backstreet's back. I think so. Yeah. Where I'm like, who's ever dancing in a hangar? And it's like, turns out the Backstreet Boys. They did in order to exist, yes. in order to live. They had to. They had to dance in that hangar. Dance in that hangar, baby. Uh, he Lou Pearlman also realized that in order to cast a boy band, you need types. You need archetypes. 
Uh, you I mean, need that is a a good revelation. You need the sporty guy, yeah. for your sporty girls. You need the bad boy. You need the bad boy for the bad girls. You need the pretty boy. You need the pretty boy slash like the young the young boy, yes. younger looking boy. Your Nick for your, Carter. For your pretty girls. For your for your for your basic girls, your basically. Girly girls. Uh, and then like your sensitive poet type mm-hmm. for the sensitive poet girl. So there's got to be something for everybody. And then, of course, you need your karate guy. <laughs> Then you need the other guy who makes the guy's types clear. Pop, pop, pop out. Pop, yeah. Because you you got one guy who's like, I, what's his deal? You're like, well, he I'm likes here. Motorcycles? <laughs> he doesn't. I guess that'd be a bad boy thing. Yeah, that's the thing. Bad boy's got to be a motorcycle. This guy's just like, I don't know. I like my mom. Yeah. The nice guy? The but nice not too guy? nice? Anyway, Howie, Howie Duro in, <laughs> in the Backstreet Boys. Although, incredibly, in this book, Howie Duro is referenced by Lou Pearlman as a guy that he pulls in for some Latino flavor, but he's not Latino. <laughs> he's a Latino style guy. Like it, a Latino style white. So odd. They're like, he's like Menudo was happening. Ricky Martin's sure. origin was Menudo. He's like, well, Menudo's happening, so we got to get some Latin flavor. So we put in Howie Duro. I think he's Irish. Whatever. <laughs> Irish well, as Spanish. we all know, the uh, the Irish are the Latinos of the North Sea. Of course. Um, so he makes he makes the Backstreet Boys. Uh, he assembles the Backstreet Boys together. He treats them exactly the way a creep would. He wines them. Mm-hmm. He dines them. He spends cash on them. He he promises them riches beyond their wildest belief. Exactly. Uh, he's physically affectionate with them, roughhousing and head padding them. Uh. Uh, so there are allegations that he, uh, he, he did some inappropriate touching. It's, it's alleged. I believe it. Mm -hmm. Um, unfortunately, one of the main guys who did the accusations is rich Cronin, who is one of the guys from LFO. LFO was one of Lou Pearlman's post instinct, post backstreet boy, Uh boy bands, summer girls. I like guys that wear girls that wear Abercrombie and Fitch. Of course. Rich Rich Cronin, unfortunately died of leukemia. Two of the three three members of LFO are dead now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that that was where the accusations, like the biggest ones came from. I think Lance Bass might have also contributed to. But the, it, it's mostly been like insinuation. It's insinuations. Right? There's nothing definite. But like this guy is. And now he's dead. And now he's dead. Um, but he's he's he, he's a creep. He's creeping. He's he is at creep. least a creep. At, at the very least. I uh, mean, he's a blimp guy. Come on. More importantly, not more importantly, but more provably, he's a financial creep. This motherfucker was paid as the sixth Backstreet Boy. He got a sixth of their tour earnings. He got a sixth of their merch earnings. He got a sixth of their recording income. That's, he was paid as a sixth Backstreet Boy. Uh, that's insane. I would like to Photoshop Lou Pearlman into all those uh, insane press photos of the Backstreet Boys that make them look like Guy Fieri's five sons. Yeah, right. Yes. So he he's scamming them. Right. Deeply. But he's also fronting the money. He's he's paying for the recording fees. He's, you know, chauffeuring them around town. He's basically doing the thing that all managers do, which is like, I've invested in you. So much. Yeah. And they, I'm sure they have no idea how much. No is idea how much is being spent. And they're, these are all like, I would say fairly. You're not babies, but like they're in their late teens, early 20s. They don't know what the fuck is going on. They're thirsty. They're from Orlando. They're, yeah. Come on. Uh, so th- they don't get it. Their their debut is at SeaWorld next to Shamu's tank. They le- they're literally dancing on a wet floor <laughs> from the whale. That is fucking hilarious. Uh, and introducing the Backstreet Boys, Shamu do a flip. 
just these poor wet backstreet boys. I was just imagining what that must have been. That is, a, I would, I would love to be in that crowd as that happened. When you just had no idea what you were about to like see or what the context for this thing is, and it's like now before you watch Shamu eat the tuna, these five children are these five young young boys are going to come sing a nice song. They for would you. like to sing a nice song for you. Uh, and meanwhile, they have a manager. They do not have a record deal. Mm-hmm. Lou Pearlman is shopping them around. Uh, he's he's getting them in malls. He's like making them do shows. He's trying to uh, get interest. He finally draws the attention of Jive Records. Uh, specifically, Jive Records was founded by, it's a, a label side of Zomba, which is the publishing company founded by this guy named Clive Calder. Okay. Clive Calder is one of the richest people alive uh, and certainly one of the richest music industry people alive. He ended up selling Jive slash Zomba to BMG in 2002 thanks to a weird bit of paperwork that that year in 2002 he was able to sell it for uh, three times the revenue of the prior year. So he sold it for $2.7 billion. Wow. He got this motherfucker got out of the, the record, the recording industry, the uh, the music publishing industry in 2002 for almost three billion dollars. Amazing! What a what a G! Once again, he doesn't need any of that money. That money needs to go to other people. And then he straight up he didn't start Quibi. He <laughs> retired. He's he lives in the Grand Cayman. He in lives Cayman in Islands. the Cayman Islands. He's barely seen in public. He's out. I mean, good enough. I'm sure he's a fucking bastard. Uh. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but South, he ran, he ran Af- a hell of a record label. He ran a hell, South African dude ran a hell of a le- record label. Yeah. Also, whatever a South African dude did to get the capital to start yeah. a music publishing company, yeah. it's probably not great. Yes. I'm, I'm tugging my collar hard enough my shirt is ripping. My, my sh- I've lost my shirt entirely. Um, the interesting thing about Jive Records, because I grew up, I grew up listening to Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, Jive Signees. Right. I had the CDs. I was very, <laughs> I just needed to read stuff all the time. So I would be reading like the liner notes sure, and all this sure. shit. And I was like aware of like Jive Records. Jive Records in the 80s was a hip hop label. Okay. Uh, I mean, that makes sense with the name. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jive. Um Clive Calder, when he was originally hiring someone to run U.S. operations of Jive in the mid-80s, he hired a guy named Barry Weiss, and part of Barry's sort of audition... Not not the Barry Weiss we all know and love. No, not that Barry Weiss. I assume a better Barry Weiss. Presumably at least cooler Barry Weiss. A cooler Barry Weiss. Barry Weiss, as sort of his like audition in order to show Clive Calder that he knew what was up in music in New York in the eighties. He took him on an all night tour of New York city clubs, including a seminal hip hop club, better days, which was in midtown. Okay. He ended the night at paradise garage where Larry Levin was spinning house music. Larry Levin in the DJ booth. Hi, Larry. Hi, Larry. (laughs) Isn't that badass? Yes. I mean, that is that I would like to be on that tour. I would that talking another, uh, uh, movie that I would like to see yes. is the, the that all, night all night tour tour of New York City 80s music. Yes. God damn. So Jive was a hip hop label. Uh, Backstreet Boys, when they signed, were Jive's pivot to pop because uh, 
I don't I don't know. It was it was like let's make some let's just have some like normal music. <laughs> that's that's not, terrible not, to say. Let's have some mid, you know middle some, brow yeah, middle brow white boy music. Kid white boy uh, kid friendly music. Let's get that new kids on the block money. Let's get that new kids on the block money. Clearly, there's a lot to go around. Um, so they Backstreet Boys is now they're a Jive signee. They're a pop music entity for Jive. Right. Where do you send Backstreet Boys in order to get songs written for them? Uh, Chiron. They send him to Chiron. Uh, Chiron knows what to do. And so Dennis Pop. Just so many just threads of the of the early 90s like coming together. It's the, so nuts. Yeah. Uh, it's the song. It's the it's the hit machine. Yeah. The song factory. The, the song machine. The song machine. The, the hit, hit factory. factory. <laughs> uh, they send the boys to Sweden. Dennis Pop. They send and, them to Sweden? Yeah. That's the thing is the Swedish guys don't want to come to America. I, I see. I thought when you said they set up Chiron that they set up shop in America. No, Chiron is in Stockholm. There was a Sheridan hotel that I guess became like the teen pop <laughs> zone of like you would send your kid to the, the, the Stockholm Sheridan. <laughs> yeah. Another movie I would like to see the Stockholm Sheridan. Uh, so Dennis Pop, Max Martin, they're writing songs for the boys of the backstreet and similar. Uh, these songs were written piecemeal basically as parts because mm-hmm. literally it is a factory. Dennis Pop believed that songwriting should not be uh songwriting should not be something that is stifled within one. It should be shared amongst many. It's literally a factory. It's it's everybody's producing their own thing. No one should get too um uh precious about ownership. Right. No one should get too precious about whether a song is working or not. Chop off the chorus if it's not working. Stick it on someone else's it's verse. Not, yeah, it's not all one thing. It's not a song. It's 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 a component pieces. It's a component pieces, and so he's got this like team, and they're basically creating songs out of parts, mm-hmm. and those songs are going to the Backstreet Boys. And revisiting these songs when I was reading this book just restoked my. I was a big Backstreet Boys fan when I was a kid. I was like six or Did seven. Did you have preferences over between Backstreet Boys and In Sync? I was Backstreet first. In sync second, uh, like I like Backstreet Boys first, and then when In Sync was introduced, they you, kind of you usurped them because yeah. they were a little cooler. They were a little cooler. Uh, there was a Rolling Stone review of an In Sync album that basically said when In Sync came along, they made they were so cool looking that they made the Backstreet Boys look like rose brandishing math teachers. <laughs> I would agree. With, like the way the Backstreet Boys were styled in like some of those early videos, it was like. A, a tasteful earth-toned gap sweater. And also pulling stuff from the early 90s from New Kids on the Block, even from like the 80s, like New Jack Swing style yeah. of like these like big pants and these weird vests. Yes. These baggy shirts. Their hair was spiked, but not in the right way. <laughs> yeah, and the, they did, They weren't, it wasn't very future looking. Yeah. Everything was all silky. No, I was wrong when I, I referenced my own tweet earlier. It wasn't the Backstreet Boys. It was in sync. The the press photos of in sync all make them look like Guy Fieri's five sons. And in sync, it's like they've got they're wearing like shiny parachute space pants, suits, space nylon, weird sunglasses. <laughs> yes, so weird. Um, absolutely denim suits. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, revisiting Backstreet Boys songs just reminded me that. Basically, everything that I like about music, I learned to like on Backstreet Boys songs. Melody, rhythm, the the perfect like earwormy thing when everything works together so well mm-hmm. and like everything seems wrong, but it's all right when you put it together. Right. So let's listen to We've Got It Going On because that is their, I think their first 
what ends up being kind of their first semi crossover hit. Wow, God, just seeing this album cover or the single cover with this fucking like '90s Microsoft Word uh, Word art style mm-hmm. logo name and all their bad outfits. Okay, <laughs> okay, here we go. Backstreet Boys, we've got it going on. Once again, that percussion. Yeah. That. Gale used this song in That's the thing. It's these Swedish chord melody yeah, yeah. combinations that aren't, they're so off that they work. Yeah. Like, is it mi- major key, minor key? Like, what are they Mixolydian? doing? It might be. Ooh, baby. Is this what Eminem was parodying in Guess Who? In uh, Shady's Back? Guess Who's Back, Back yeah. Again. Probably, yeah. I'm creeping up on your left with in a funky way. I get witcha. I the following verse is like I'm ruthless when I get wet, which is like that, weird. You were you were reciting some of these nonsense lyrics to me. Uh, if you, if you wanna if you really wanna see what, what we can do for you, uh, send the cra- send the crazy wilding static. <laughs> what, I, <laughs> what does that mean? Nothing. I don't know, it but it, rith- it rhythmically it sounds great. It's kind of evocative. Mm-hmm. Gets the people going. I'm like, yes, yes. Send, send that wilding static. Baby. It's funny. Uh, it's it is one of those things as we talked about, like that. This music is so has been so much of the over culture for so long that when you really like sit with that song for a while, it's it's funny to think of just how weird that song. It's is. such a weird song. Yes. Uh, and be, and you're like, oh, Backstreet Boys. They just make like. Oh, Backstreet Boys, normal, normie pop for like normie, you know, preteen losers. And you like sit with that song for a bit and you're like, what is this scale? What are these lyrics? Mm-hmm. What is the inflection of these voices? Yeah. Like who who came up with this? Yes. Like who is this for? Swedish people. Swedish people. Um, I would like to play another. Um, this is music designed by people who, who only see the sunlight six hours a day. <laughs> and who have health care. Yeah. So that they can't, if someone, if they make a weird song and someone is like, you're fired, they can be like, fine. Fine. I'll, I'll make, I'll make fi- a song somewhere else. I'll just make two dozen more weird songs. <laughs> you can't, you cannot stop. You can't stop me. Yes. Uh, Go I ahead, like to play. Me. It'll quit. just make my songs weirder. Will you play quit playing games with my heart? Yes. This is another early Backstreet Boys hit, which is in the sort of like prettier. The, the other one was a little like darker, weirder, funkier. This is a little like cuter. This is quit playing games parentheses with, with my, my heart. heart. Mm-hmm. Again with the percussion. Yep. Baby, oh, 
rings in the background. Mm-hmm. Remember what I was talking about? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, on uh, that Billie Jean remix. Yeah. Listening to this one, I'm like, this is surprisingly minimal, though. Yeah. Well, let's get to the chorus. That acoustic guitar line that almost sounds like it's out of a karaoke machine MIDI track. Yeah. The Nick Carter verse. Poor little boy I mean, singing straight through his nose. I mean, I know it's matched up with the bass drum here, but even now that like kind of syncopated uh, or minimalist like bass that bass line that just comes in phrases. Mm-hmm. You know, in a more upbeat song, it would be like boom, boom, Yeah. Will you scrub ahead to the bridge? Yeah. Let's see if I can find it. This part? Yeah. Here we go. Drama. <laughs> like this, this is the... This, I feel like... This is, that is like the sucker punch right. to like win you because it's kind of it's and not it's the most here. interesting song it's supposedly repeating the same shit over and over which as we've talked about is the way to yeah. get you to so you get can hear it 10,000 times in a CBS and eventually become inured yeah. to it but the, the minor key bridge I just I oh it's just the, the Swedish innovation that I just I love this is powerful cultural technology. Right it here. is powerful cultural technology. So Backstreet Boys basically sweats it out uh, in Europe for like two years. That was just something else that I didn't realize. Like by the time I became a fan of Backstreet Boys, they had already been like huge in Germany <laughs> for, for a long time. Um, they originally, they kept trying to get on MTV. MTV basically outright banned them. They said, stop giving us the Backstreet Boys, we will not play their videos. They are too soft. We are MTV. We're hard and alt. Something that I personally talk about misremembering history. I think of MTV as always middle of the road pop uh, yes. distribution. Not true. No. In the 80s, they were alternative. They were playing harder stuff. They were playing stuff that moms didn't want you to listen to. Yeah. Uh, you know, rock Twisted music. Twisted Sister was, bus- was breaking open your TV and coming into your house and wrecking up the place. Re- r- Much just to your ruffling. nerd dad's chagrin. <laughs> your, your, your prog listening dad's yeah. uh, uh, deep sadness. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't until the mid to late 90s when TRL started mm-hmm. that they were able to basically wash their hands of their punk credentials and say, you guys pick this music. Yeah. This, you, is, this is the masses. Hey, it's not us. You, TRL is you voting, man. This that's you, dude. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> like we're we would never like we wouldn't choose this pop shit. But if you're but, gonna pick you know, it, I'm sure. Like you know, the bot from the bottom line perspective. Hey, putting on the actual popular bands. Hmm, I wonder what that does to our ad sales. It does. It does good things. Uh, another uh, element in culture that John Seabrook cites that basically he's basically saying it allows a band like BSB to push through is the telecommunications act of 1996 a truly heinous act one Which, of the one of the again we're, this is all chaos runes 
uh, because the Telecommunications Act is one of the things that gets us to our media landscape of today, which mm-hmm. is to say disastrous. Disastrous. Yes. Now we basically have like one radio station. We one radio station, uh, you know, and and one company owns what like 60% of all uh, yeah. uh, uh, local televisions yeah. and like, yeah. Yeah, it's awful. Uh, but what, what that did at the time was, you know, the stratified, uh, atomized... Radio stations were consolidated, consolidated, consolidated. We should do a, a mini series on Chapo, just on, on the telecommunications. You should. I think it's interesting. Ads. Like it's, two or three episodes, just on what it is, and it's. I might do that. It's it's implicate the in, the international implications. The it international has, implications. The clearance it has. The insinuation. Yeah. Um. So, also just in larger trends in pop music, we're moving into the mid '90s the grungy early times, which was depressing for pop radio, like pop radio people were basically fleeing because they would rather listen to Nirvana Mm -hmm. and programmers such as uh, programmers for Z100, which is a super influential uh, uh, clear, I believe it's clear channel, right? Uh, Early clear channel radio station based in New York city. They're like, look, give us some pure pop to play. Yes. And Backstreet Boys were handed them on a platter. Yeah, baby. So that's how they basically broke through in America. They were popular in Europe, but it took the consolidation of radio stations in America to make them popular. To make them play on every radio station at every time. And then from there, it was just, you know, the tipping point. And, you know, you you see Nick Carter and he's got that floppy forelock (laughs) of blonde hair and he's so cute. Uh, you, just wanna, just, you just want to pinch him. You just want to. You just want to marry if him. If you're a twelve to, to or uh, I'd say like eleven to fourteen year old girl, you just want to chastely kiss him. You just, yeah, just want to kiss his poster. <laughs> Actually, ki- like, oh my god, you ever see f- uh, footage of like One Direction or Justin Bieber? Yeah, and they're with their fans and they're taking like selfies and the fans will like kiss them on the cheek. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, I would never been able to do that. Are you kidding? <laughs> Too bold. Too bold. I I faint onto my fainting couch. Let's veer away from uh, Backstreet Boys for the time being, but let's stay in Orlando because we've got another key, crucial part emerging from the the nuclear the nuclear Disney sludge of Orlando. Uh, another another swamp person. That's very rude to say. Um, swamp person. That's what uh, Vanessa Gregoriadis called her in the Rolling Stone article, "The Tragedy of Britney Spears." Britney Spears, everybody. Oh, it's Britney Spears. She's from Louisiana, though. She's from exactly. She's a swamp. She's another a, swamp. Another I thought you said person. moving back to Orlando. Yeah, but she's she's in Orlando because she's moved to Orlando to, to be, be in the Disney bunch. What she's a, a mouseketeer. A mouseketeer. <laughs> the, the good old Disney, Disney bunch. bunch. The, the the mouse buddies. The mouse. The mousy girls and boys. Uh, so Brittany, as as John Seabrook says, she is schooled in clean cut and wholesome Disney values. As we talked about in that episode, she is a uh, church girl. She did pageants. She, uh, yeah, she's a stage stage kid. She did yeah. bro- a little Broadway, at, you know, commercials, mm-hmm. catalogs, that kind of thing, and then auditioned to be on the Mouseketeers. Made on the Mouseketeers. Finished the Mouseketeers. What shall she do next? Uh, she <laughs> ends up yeah, sixteen years old, down and out in Orlando. Down and out in Orlando. Uh, interesting quote from the principal of the Mickey Mouse school who was quoted uh, and said that Brittany gave the distinct impression that if an adult says do something, you do it. She truly felt that all adults and people in authority were good people. Uh, So that's Brit. Hate to hear it. Um, Also, you know, cannot ignore she's, she's poor. 
She's from a working class family. Uh, she is her family's meal ticket. Mm-hmm. Her, fa- her father's an addict. Her mom is just trying to make ends meet. She is literally uh, the breadwinner of, of her the family. family by the age of like 12. By the age something. of, yeah, exactly. Um, but she's trying to figure out what to do next. She's auditioning for labels. She auditions with a, uh, with when she goes to Jive, she goes to Jive Records and auditions with two Whitney Houston songs. <laughs> I would love to hear that audition. Which, if you know Britney's voice, She is love a the very girl. talented lady. Very talented. Her vocals are maybe not her maxed out stat. Yes. Uh, and she was, ultimately, she was ultimately signed to Jive because, quote, she was hardly the type to engage in diva-like histrionics. Again, we are mm. finding people who are not, who don't have a will, who yes. don't have uh, any power, who are content and happy to just go with the flow because do what they're told they're, because they all they want their themness is not the point yes they, they're but a va- vessel for this slick swedish music to be poured they're, they're into. waiting to be filled yes. filled with music but that's so it's interesting because the britney spears songs i mean that is a thing the britney spears songs were waiting before britney even showed up and not just waiting um uh, offered to TLC first. Real, which TLC song? Hit me, hit me, baby, one more time. Was originally offered to TLC, and they said no. Not really our style. Yes. So that's the th- that's the crazy thing when you think about. Although songs, I do like imagining a real raunchy, uh, even like, you know, the the power a cra- of a hit- crazy, sexy, cool version. Of yes. Uh, the power of hit me, baby, one more time is the con- is like Britney's squeaky image with the like. The, the implication of the song, the Catholic but I w- schoolgirl. But thing. I would love the fucking left eye condom eye <laughs> eye piece singing about "Hit Me, Baby, One More Time." Now that that seems like it would have some bite to it. Sure, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, no, that's it's it's funny you say that. You know, there it's vessels waiting to be filled with songs because one mode of thinking about song craft and musicianship is through authenticity, which is that you are the music. The music came from you. Mm -hmm. Music is you. You're expressing yourself through the music. Right. Not true with With this, this. And that comes, and that is one of the central tensions of these last, like, uh, especially this era, era authenticity versus inauthenticity. And to go back to that other, again, thinking of like the polar opposite of like, uh, you know, the single hip hop performer where in a world where in that world, like authenticity is, is a key trade. Yes or is a, a one of the fundamental currencies of the trade, it is all about how much your personal lyrics accurately rec- reflect your actual life. In fact, I mean, I only know this lyric from a fucking Girl Talk song, which shows how much a proposer I am, but one of the best uh, hip-hop <laughs> lyrics uh, is, uh, I or brags that I've heard is, I do everything I rap about. Yes, you know? yes, 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 yes. Because uh, that's the most perfect expression of of the essential soul of that is I am my lyrics. My lyrics are me. There is zero difference between anything that I sing about and who I am as a person. Yes. Whereas on this other pole of authenticity, it is like there is zero relationship between myself Mm -hmm. and the lyrics. And I think that's what one of the things that makes that side of pop music, current pop music more tragic is the conflation between the people who are singing these lyrics and their lyrics. Yes. Because they have zero relationship to them. Yes. You're completely untethered. Right. Which is, you know, fine. And it really, it's depending on how pop stars present themselves, you can read in more or less authenticity to their music. For example, uh, Avril Lavigne uh, got in, in big trouble in 
the early aughts when, you know, Avril Lavigne came out. This is we're kind of skipping ahead a little bit, but Avril Lavigne came out as a, a rocker girl, right? Mm-hmm. A sort of a punk rock chick uh, making pop punk music. And it is implied that she wrote all of her songs, right? Or at least you wouldn't question it because it's a girl who's singing with a sort of raw, edgy feel, not a polished, sexy feel. Right. Um, and then, it, of course, it came out like the songwriting trio that wrote her songs is The Matrix, <laughs> and the matrix was like yeah we wrote those songs and then Avril Lavigne was like uh, uh no uh, uh. i did <laughs> and that's where you know mm-hmm. the pres- the presentation of authenticity is is britney spears i don't think anyone was ever asking her do you write your own songs beyonce is definitely an interesting example of someone who's kind of crossing the divide between someone who's a pop product and someone who's a raw authentic person because she's singing about race womanhood yeah uh, you know, being being a mom, all that shit. But you can't deny that when you look at the peop- the list of songwriters on her music, there's a lot yes. because she is a smart capitalist woman who is going to hire the best people to make all the best song bits for her to assemble into her expression, which includes her expression. Right. Anyway, I, it's 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 interesting. All this stuff is very it's interesting, very interesting to me. But anyway, so yes, we've got we've got this this vessel to be filled. This sweet southern girl uh, with. No money and no power yes. and uh, and talent uh, and not no money, no power, no talent. She's got plenty of talent, plenty of raw talent. Uh, send her to Sweden. We get Amy Baver one more time. Shall we listen? One more time. Yes. One more time. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've been trying to find who does that that sample of I do everything I rap about. And talk about. I'll figure it out and put it in in the post here. Anyway, here's one more time. Here's dot 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 one more time. Not to top. Maybe one more time. Yes. One more time is also by. Yeah. Again, listen to that percussion. Slap bass. The slap bass is very fun. But still going those. And then the little, there's even guitar in this song? Oh, yeah, the wah guitar. Backgrounds and strings. Things really get shiny. Yeah. Also, once again, swinglish. Yeah. Uh, oh, what yeah. is what does "Hit Me, Baby" one more time mean? It means "Call Me Again." Yes. <laughs> that, that that's apparently what they would have originally wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, Call, call me again. I like I like hanging out with you, but it does have this weird kind of uh, you know violence, sexual, <laughs> sexual violence, violence, sexual yeah, which is once again a little weird when it's being sung by a 16, 17 year old girl. I don't think Dennis Pop actually had a hand in this this was i think just a max martin with maybe some a couple of other swedes because and the reason that is is because dennis pop 
by 1997 was sick with stomach cancer, which he eventually died from. Oh, year. yeah. He died like before he was 40, right? He died at 35. That is insane. And Changed the he, landscape of pop, pop music dead before 35. And what have within you done? the span of six years, basically 1992, he starts producing um, Ace of Bass. Mm-hmm. 1998, Britney Spears' album comes out and he dies. Isn't that nuts? Minor Bridge. Minor Bridge! That is extremely nuts. Uh, I mean, he's one of those figures that, like, I don't know how to feel about. Is he, is he gone too soon, or should he never have came in the first place? I don't know. I I mean, I I, I like this. It's obviously things... But, but it you gets have, pervert. All of this style of songwriting you, gets more and more perverted as the years go on. You but, have no choice but to like it, though. Yeah. There's, there's no way that you could not like it. It is, uh, it is engineered for you to like it. Yes, it is. I, it's one of those things where I can't help but think that if he didn't make music this way, somebody else would, you know? Yeah, it just ha- it happened to be the like, right time, right place, right yeah. guy. But again, all these forces conspiring to just push things in the direction. It's just a matter of who pushed open that door first. Yeah, yeah. But the other thing that I was thinking about is that you've got American vessels... Uh, waiting to be filled with Swedish songs. But the problem is that it's not Swedish business. Yes. The Swedish people are, once again, they've got the hit factory, but they are just still a cog in the greater machine that is American music capitalism. Yes. The Swedish people aren't, while they're making music that sounds eventually like exploitation right they are not exploiting anyone they are just creating a product that then is used you know you they are they are the bridge you have these again these like empty vessel performers who mm-hmm. want to perform in a a music pop music context but don't have any anything to do with yeah and you have this machine waiting to exploit these young exploitable people yeah but what you don't have is the actual tactile thing that links these two things together Mm -hmm. and they are, they are the bridge. Yep. And again, like if it wasn't for these people, it would maybe be a slightly different style. Honestly, maybe in a slightly different world, one of the grunge guys ports over and becomes like the hit, the song machine guy and all of pop music is more grunge inflected now, Mm -hmm. or maybe a hip hop guy Mm -hmm. ports over. I mean, a lot, most pop music is at least somewhat hip hop inflected now, but you know, right? Like a real like that just that took longer to happen. It t- yeah, yeah, it took longer to to happen. Um, but yeah, these guys are are the bridge. Yeah. Uh, would you believe me if I told you that when Jive signed Britney Spears, they didn't even know she could dance? <laughs> I that is actually surprising to me. It's just da- dancing was more her thing when she was a Musketeer, but they basically I feel like they they didn't even understand her career prior to this. They, like, just, they like, just saw pictures and like heard a demo like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And then it wasn't until she came in. She's like, you guys know I really like to dance, right? Maybe I could dance in the video. Uh-huh. And they were like, oh, you can do that. <laughs> it's just she she fell into their their lap and they That's just amazing. ruined her life. <laughs> they ruined her fucking life. Um, the other uh, counterpoint to Britney at this time, which I, I have to shout out, is Robin. Robin, mm-hmm. uh, the Swedish pop star, Robin came up uh, basically slightly before Britney Spears did. Her her album was already in the can. It was also a uh, Max Martin produced record. Yeah. Uh, and 
Robin was in set in the mold of a solo female pop star right. ready to break in America, which her song Show Me Love did. That was an American hit. Mm-hmm. But Robin, bless her, uh, maybe it comes from being born in Sweden with slightly different cultural values, IDK, uh, or just once again, having a social safety net right. as opposed to just being broke as fuck and yes, therefore willing to do desperate and will do whatever, whatever somebody, some weird old guy tells you. Yeah. She started pushing back on what she wanted the direction of her music to be uh, so that her second album took a while to come out, uh, didn't have any hits. She kind of floundered for a while and then she started her own label to release uh, her own music. Teenage Wah Records and then released her own music and Is then made... creation. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I'm, well, I think we're allowed to use other languages. It just matters uh, how. In this day and age, you're walking a line. Walking a thin line, dog. Uh, ma- created her own label created her own music went a completely different way and is now basically the example of like the indie pop star right that now lord carly ray jepsen etc cetera, etc cetera, are following right the she's the shadow image of britney spears and i'm reading this in a class way and just totally blaming it on her you know the desperateness not having to uh not having this be the only option right to close out this chapter of uh the song the song machine, the hit factory, the song factory, <laughs> the, the song factory, the, the song hit machine. machine. Um, things start to go rotten in boy band town. Mm-hmm. Uh, Backstreet Boys and then eventually NSYNC are both super successful, raking in millions and millions of dollars. But Lou Pearlman is not paying them money. Yes. Because he needs to recoup his initial investment, Investments. which he said was $3 million. Mm-hmm. Who knows how much money? It uh, surely was. that's a, how much money they made in concessions at one concert. <laughs> Just like 20,000 girls drinking like 8 million sodas. sodas a piece. Yes. <laughs> At stadium prices. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, and also the, you know, the margin on that is, is incredible. Yeah. Uh, also worth noting Lou Pearlman made the Backstreet Boys and then behind the Backstreet Boys back created in sync, a competing boy band and start was paid as a sixth member of InSync as well. So he's double dipping. He's cannibalizing his, his own, own shit uh, without I do it their once consent. and I'll do it again. Uh, I'm sure there is nothing in the contract that said you can be our only guy. Yes. Um, I mean, I'm, were the labels pissed about that? Did the InSync sign to Jive? Yes. The la- What's the difference between the labels? They're, well, they're I'm just, getting all you know, the money. If, if the manager who created one band then created a competing band in the exact same demo against the band that you already signed. I don't know. I, I guess the, the difference is the label's still getting all of that money. Lou Pearlman's still getting all that money. Backstreet Boys is losing that yes. money, that market share, I right. guess, boy band market share. Meanwhile, Backstreet Boys, quote, kept meeting friends of Lou's who seemed to have a special claim on their time. These friends would eat with the guys, accompany them on tour buses, and sometimes even ride with them to gigs. These are Weird. investors in oh, Lou Pearlman's other companies Ugh. that he basically oh. has promised special time with special the Backstreet Boys. Special time with the Backstreet Boys. Uh. Uh, gr- so gr- I just, I can't even imagine the violation also just like as an artist. Yeah. Who are you? You're about to spend, uh, you're about to play to how many people? Jerry, and- Jerry Wyland amalgamated aluminum processes. Uh, you're, uh, you owe me uh, two hours of dinner tonight. Uh, I'm going to bring my daughters and my daughter's 18 friends and they're going to chew we your are ear going off. To Chuck, you're going to Chuck E. Cheese's. Excited? 
<laughs> no, <laughs> no, I'm not. Just I, as a, as a, a creative person and an artist, the idea of giving someone your literal like time, time and body payment. space. Yeah. It's like, that is so fucking rude. You're doing bodies and spaces against the Backstreet Boys. Uh, uh, uh. uh, turns out Backstreet Boys and NSYNC were part of a Ponzi scheme. They were upholding a huge, uh, a huge pyramid scheme of Lou Pearlman's from all the other companies that he was trying. So to he, he was basically for fronting money from the, for the Backstreet Boys and then using their earnings to pay off the investments in the background. Indeed. Uh, and Kevin Richardson, who was the sort of the sweet one, the, the sort of dad, dad vibe, uh, boy of Backstreet Boys. He was saying, you know what? Our managers are driving Jaguars and we're sharing hotel rooms. Something's not right. That is not right. I'm sure they were also making a billion dollars a year. I'm just so, I'm so mad for these boys. These poor boys. All these people. I get like, I, me gave them money. Yes. I gave it and my, my parents money. I was not earning any money. Yes. But they, that money was not going to them. The people who made me so music that made me so happy. It went to that fucking fuck. Yes. That blimp boy. Yeah. I mean, creepy motherfucker. Uh, Story of pop music. Yes. A bunch of fucking music slosh, slosh or money sloshing around the music industry right now. Uh, near InSync uh, sold 50 million albums and had a $35 per diem. $35 per diem? Each of them had a $35 per diem when they would like go on tour. That's fucking insane. I just, I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can believe it, but I can't believe it. Uh, incredibly, both bands sued for independence mm-hmm. uh, and Lou Pearlman got a, sh- a windfall from each of them because they settled and he got still shaved more millions off the top because they were breaking their contracts with him. Jesus Christ. I didn't realize when NSYNC released an album called No Strings Attached, they were referring I, to Lou Pearlman. I remember that as as being like, you know, uh, like kind of side-eyed reported on like an MTV would be like, NSYNC's new No Strings Attached mm-hmm. referring to their recent uh, uh, move towards independence. You know, quote, move towards independence or yeah. something. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Lou Pearlman maybe could have taken those payouts and said, you know, basically shut the pyramid scheme uh, down. As his t- close the clamp on the, the briefcase full of money as he's gripping one ring of the rope ladder coming out of the blimp <laughs> floating away. Say, ha ha, I got it all. And all you have are your little songs and dances. <laughs> Goodbye. 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 Uh, no, he, he was doing the one last, the one last job, but it was, I got to find one last band. LFO. LFO, a couple other ones. Like he just, but he couldn't. The thing is, you need the hits. That taste, the taste of the hits. That that one hundred percent pure Swede in your ear. Oh, you gotta come back. It's it, so he yeah he he kept trying to prop it up. The hits weren't coming, and they <laughs> the didn't start coming. The hits stopped coming. Uh, his his life caught up with him. He was eventually charged uh, by the U.S. government for uh, defrauding more than a thousand investors of uh, three hundred million dollars. Blimp fraud. Blimp, yeah, and just blimp fraud. <laughs> Six counts of aggravated blimp fraud. Uh, the the craziest what I mean there's so many crazy details of Lou Pearlman's life but one of them is that uh, in a brochure he made with his airline company his private jet company mm-hmm. uh, is that he showed a hangar full of airplanes but they were model airplanes <laughs> <laughs> he I mean he is like a fucking supervillain he's a he's a scammer uh, he's he goes I think that he does go in the book of American scammers he's a he a grift 
grift all mode. Uh, he, yeah. there's no there's no one who's doing like Lou Pearlman. He went to prison. And he died in prison. And I'm trying, you know, trying to be abolitionist. I'm trying to be anti-carceral. But if anyone deserves to die in prison, I'm sorry. It's Lou fucking Pearlman. Yeah, I mean, the people, exploitation. Look, here's my compromise for prison shit. Exploiters go to prison. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if he, he had every opportunity to not do the things that he did. And probably still be ridiculously wealthy. Yes. If he could make a normal manager's salary. And Backstreet Boys were hugely. No, no, no sympathy for Lou Pearlman. Uh, good that he died in prison. Great a creep. Yeah. Uh, one of the, one of the, the he, as I've said in a, a, um, uh, in a scene rife with chaotic, mm-hmm. maybe verging on, on, on evil energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, one of the true sources of pure, of actual evil. Just in this. real, yeah. real sicko. Yeah. Real. Shit. Yeah. Um, fuck off and die. Lou Pearlman. Good riddance. Yeah. And then so we're we're tur- turning at the turn of the millennium. Uh, Chiron splits up. Why did they split up? Well, we had turned into more of a machine than the gang of young and happy guys working in the <laughs> promised land of music. We were but happy songsmiths. I think I finally nailed the Swedish there. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and now there is no joy in the mechanical production of the poppy music. Yeah, you can only do it for so many years before I'm sure it just feels. Feels we, bad, man. We had lost the beating heart of pop. Din is pop. Uh, and, you know, meanwhile, so uh, Backstreet Boys uh, eventually breaks up. Uh, AJ from the Backstreet Boys goes to rehab. Nick Carter goes to rehab. Uh, Britney Spears spends, you know, ha- just about halfway through the following decade, leaves it uh, in a straitjacket on her way to a psychiatric facility. Uh, check out our previous episode check out about our previous uh, episode Britney with uh, Brit- Brittany uh, knowledge queen extraordinaire Ryan Sassine. Uh, yeah, that's that's the the thing. It always it's human pop music is human capital at the end of the day. And if you exploit people, they will eventually break down the same way overusing a uh, factory part would. So this is going to be a two part episode. And we're calling it here for part one. Indeed, we are in. Actually, fairly dramatic, dramatic flair, leaving it at a dark, dark moment, leaving it a dark moment. Uh, the future of pop is yet unwritten, but we will come back to it next time uh, in another week or two weeks. I don't know. I don't know how long I'm going to put these out, but we're going get, to get back into now that we have moved. Uh, we're going to get back into these uh, these episodes regularly. Uh, so stay tuned for part two of the history of modern pop music. Uh, we have got some very nice emails recently i don't know if i should dramatically leave them for the end of the next episode do you want to shout anybody out um uh please hold uh beep beep boop boop uh no just some some nice emails some good good suggestions uh sammy hagar's uh book was was suggested sammy hagar is uh apparently he's got some thoughts about ufos which i'm just like oh yeah great you know we uh, love it well maybe i'll do a more in-depth email reading next time yeah let's do it let's let's do next time uh dot and, dot dot and until then uh follow us on twitter at an intro pod or send us an email at and introducing pod at gmail.com mm-hmm. uh you can follow me on twitter at say what again you can follow me on Twitter at Miss Molly Mary. Uh, Molly is actually w- is way better at Twitter th- than I am. More consistent, funnier on average. Aww. Mine are mostly up programming updates about Chapo. Uh, 
Or you, you can, you've gotten you you have enough followers now on Twitter that it's like you gotta be you get you know I gotta pick my hits you gotta pick pick my shots and know when to hold them and when to show them. So uh, where is it? Where was I? Oh, or follow us on SoundCloud as always at soundcloud.com slash and dash intro dash pod. Uh, but yes, this has been a really fun look into pop music, and we will be back for pop music talking about. Pop music part two in one or two weeks here on and introducing.